Good morning, Christ Central. Uh, as Daniel said, my name is Timothy. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central. It's an honor and privilege to be with you this morning to bring God's Word to you. We are continuing in our series, if you are new, uh, in the Ten Commandments uh, in Exodus 20. And today we'll be looking at the Second Commandment. Uh, so I'd ask you, if you're able, if you would stand as we do each week in reverence to God's holy and inspired word. This morning I'm going to be reading Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. This is God's word. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The prophet Isaiah says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would speak to us now through your word, that you would enable me to get out of your way, that your truth alone and you alone will be exalted in this place, and that as we encounter you, the living God, we will be transformed. I pray that for myself and for each person who's here. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Years ago, I stumbled across an article about a man named David Wiseman. Uh, David Wiseman is not famous, but famous enough to be featured in a local newspaper in Lakeland, Florida. And what drew me to this particular article was the similarities between this man, David, and myself. You see, David was raised in the heart of the Bible Belt uh, in the state of Alabama, just like me. Not only that, uh, just like me, David struggled with substance abuse in his young adult life. But what I found most interesting about David's story was that his response to these struggles with substance abuse was profoundly different than mine. Uh, you see, unlike me, through David's struggles, he ultimately came to disbelieve that the church was the place to find the love of God. Because according to David, the church didn't seem to help when he really needed it. But instead, the article states, David found his own church, if you will, as a former deacon in a Baptist church in Montgomery, Alabama, David now finds his greatest source of faith within a very different organization, Alcoholics Anonymous. And the article goes on to say that in AA, David found a very spiritual group, a brotherhood that encouraged a belief in a higher power in order to overcome the poison of addiction. But he also found something else, something he felt had been lacking in the churches he was raised in, AA provided a sense of togetherness that he found enriching and rewarding. 
The people attending AA strongly supported one another. No one was being judgmental. There was no culture wars, no political divisions, no backstabbing behind the scenes. What he found was a group that deeply cared for one another, plain and simple. And when I first read this article, to be honest, there was a large part of me that wanted to say, here, here, good for you, David. You found something that's working for you, so what's the big deal if it's a little outside the box in terms of what some might call orthodox Christianity? And yet, as our text will reveal this morning, there is, in fact, something terribly wrong with David's newfound perspective because it stands in direct violation to the second commandment. How in the world could David's choice to substitute church with AA be a violation of God's commandment to not make carved images? It's a great question. That's what we're going to explore this morning. As we dive into our text this morning, I want to begin by first clarifying the scope of the second commandment. What's God forbidding here? Secondly, we'll look at how we, Christ Central Church in Durham, North Carolina, are in danger of breaking this commandment. And then lastly, we will look at why it matters. Why is it so important that we not break this commandment? So let's begin. There is no question that the second commandment is by far the most misunderstood of the ten and therefore the least applied by 21st century Christians. Most Christians assume that since they've never bowed down to a statue, that they're good to go on this one. And yet what I want to argue this morning is that when we limit the scope of the commandment in that way, we are missing the real heart of the commandment and are making ourselves incredibly susceptible to violating this commandment without even knowing it. So what is the scope of the second commandment? Well, in order for us to get there, I think it's first important that we highlight how this commandment differs from the first, because they're not redundant, as one might assume. But rather, the first commandment, as Daniel highlighted last week, is all about whom we worship. But the second commandment is actually all about how we worship, about how we worship. Or as Old Testament scholar Philip Ryken says, whereas the first commandment forbids us to worship false gods, the second commandment forbids us to worship the true God falsely. There's a wonderful illustration of this distinction in the Old Testament in the life of King Jehu. We find this in 2 Kings chapter 9 and 10. What we see here is that King Jehu is initially praised by God for eliminating Baal worship in Israel. Baal being a false god. And King Jehu puts to death the wicked queen Jezebel and all of the ministers of Baal. And this is Jehu rightly keeping the first commandment, no other gods before me. And so he's praised for this action. And yet, just a few verses later in chapter 10, it says, But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, that is the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. What the text 
says here is that although Jehu purged the Israel of Baal worship, he continued to condone the golden calf worship that was very prevalent at this time. And because of this, because he failed to remove the golden calves, he's viewed by God as a wicked king. Now, what in the world is going on here? Why would Jehu be so vigilant to drive out Baal worship and yet fail to do anything about the golden calves? I think there's a clue for us here in Exodus chapter 32, a text that we actually studied last fall. And if you remember in Exodus 32, while Moses is on the mountain with God, God's people get impatient and they make a golden calf. And what's interesting about this event is that after they completed the calf, Aaron, the high priest, declares a feast to the Lord. A feast to the Lord. And what this reveals to us is that Israel's intent was to, in fact, worship the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through the golden calf. That the golden calf was their means for worshiping the one true God. But the problem was, and the reason why God was so angry with the golden calf, was because he had not permitted Israel to worship him in that way. And that's what Jehu did, and that's what happened in Exodus 32. And that's why they're both violations of not the first, but the second commandment. Right God, wrong way. And that's what we're looking at this morning. Israel was seeking to worship God in a way that he had not ordained, and God was not okay with that. And so now, from these examples, I think we can begin to wrap our minds around the full scope of the second commandment. It's not about statues, but rather about being careful, being diligent to worship the one true God in the way that he has prescribed for us to do so. But how in the world does that apply to you and me? Which brings us to our second point this morning. How are we, Christ Central Durham, in danger of breaking this commandment, of worshiping the right God in the wrong way? Because the original audience that Moses was talking to, Moses was aware that that the greatest danger that they faced in terms of worshiping God incorrectly was through carved images. And the reason that Moses knew this was the greatest danger because this is how the world around Israel worshipped at this time. If you can remember, Israel has just come out of 400 years of exile in Egypt. And during that time, they were inundated with pagan worship. And every Egyptian god had a statue, a likeness. And the Egyptians would come before these statues as a way to connect with that god. They thought they could worship these gods through these images. And so Moses, aware of that cultural norm, chooses to be very specific in his application here, knowing what the danger was, what was at stake. What's so important for us to recognize here in seeing Moses' application is that the propensity to break this commandment always comes from a desire to assimilate to the world around you. I want to repeat that. The propensity to break this commandment always comes from a desire to assimilate with the world around us. That's why you and I, I don't think, are struggling very much with bowing down to statues because that's not very cool in Durham right now, or at least to the best of my knowledge. But what are the ways that we are in danger of violating this commandment in Durham, North Carolina, 2018? 
I think there are really two primary pitfalls that our society encourages that when we succumb to them will cause us to violate this commandment. The first has to do with the object of our worship, and the second has to do with the manner in which we worship. Let's look first at the object of our worship. Like I said before, the second commandment forbids us to worship the true God falsely. And one of the most dangerous ways to do this is by manipulating that which we claim to worship into something more to our liking, or maybe better yet, something more acceptable to the world around us. Let me try to make this plain for you. As a pastor, I'm often having, often having conversations with people about faith. And in these conversations, it's becoming more and more common to hear phrases like this. That's not the God who I worship. Or that's not how I like to think about God. Or maybe that's not how I imagine a good God to be. And I understand what's at the heart of these statements, and I even understand why they're becoming more and more common in our current cultural climate. But the problem with these statements is that underneath them there is an assumption that one has the right, better yet, the responsibility to keyword imagine God as they see fit. And the problem with that is God has not permitted us to do that. Even our seminaries are being flooded with this way of thinking, some examples being postmodern theologians are prone to deny the exclusivity of God. Liberal theologians are prone to deny the judgment and wrath of God. Feminist theologians are prone to deny the fatherhood of God. And the list goes on and on. But what's going on here? In effect, these theologians are advocating for a deity who thinks more like they do. And yet the second commandment expressly forbids us to imagine God any way that we want to. You shall not make for yourself an image, something to replace the true God. Do you see why manipulating who God is, his character, in doing that we are in fact worshiping a man-made image and not God himself. As one commentator states, in the second commandment, God is declaring that he will not be captured, contained, assigned, or managed by anyone or anything for any purpose. The second commandment forbids us from saying, that's not how I like to think about God. To obey the second commandment is to worship God as he has revealed himself to us in his word, whether we like it or not. Because when it comes to worship, our imagination must be held captive to God's word. Which begs the question for all of us, do we know what God's word says about who God is? And is that the God who you worship? My hope and prayer is that when you come here each week, that you do not come here to hear what Daniel and I imagine about God. I hope that's not why you're here. But rather that you come here for the sole purpose of hearing what God has re revealed about himself in his word. And that is the revelation that you worship. But not only does it matter that we worship God as he has revealed himself to us and not a God to our liking, 
but it also matters the manner in which we worship God. And this gets back to that story that I shared with you at the beginning. What's the big deal about David dismissing traditional church for Alcoholics Anonymous? Well, the problem is that God has not permitted us, those who are in Christ, called according to his purpose, to do so. God expressly forbids us from worshiping him in whatever way we feel like it. Again, we might feel like we're off the hook as long as we don't bring statues in here to the Hatai Heritage Center each week, but the implications are obviously far greater than that. What the second commandment and countless scriptures highlight is that God has clearly laid out for us a pattern for worship. There is a specific, detailed way in which God wants us to worship him. Starting in Genesis and flowing through to Revelation, there are clear explanations of what God desires to happen in worship. The how, the when, the where, the in what way. And we see countless examples of when God's people get that wrong and God corrects them. I hope that you know that the Christ Central staff team didn't sit around the table and ask the question, I wonder what would be good to put in a worship service. I wonder what people in Durham would like to do on Sunday mornings. I hope that you know we don't do that. That that's not what motivates us in our worship but that we are tenacious in being submitted to God's word and being very diligent to not do any more or any less than what God has prescribed, which is why each and every week you will hear the word of God preached. You will hear us worship God in song. We will approach God through prayer, and we will enjoy God in the sacrament. Not because that's a good idea, because I think that will work well, but that's what God has designed and prescribed for us in his word. Once again, I want to ask this same question. How are we, Christ Central Church, in danger here? And like I said, although our culture doesn't make statues, I think we all know that we live in a culture that's obsessed with images. These kind of images, right? This kind of image. The statistics around the amount of time that an individual spends on a screen each day are staggering. And the number is increasing exponentially with each generation. And so there's obviously this pressure for us as a church to get in line, to spice up our worship and become more image-centric. And yet the problem with that is that Christianity at its core has been and always will be a religion of a book. As Michael Horton rightly points out, no other religion, although Islam comes close, is so dependent on written words as Protestant Christianity. But why do you think God did that? Why has God placed us in submission to this book? I love what Jewish scholar Nahum Sarna says about this topic. It's wonderful insight. He says, in the Israelite view, any symbolic representation of God must necessarily be both inadequate and a distortion. For an image becomes identified with what it represents and it soon looked upon as the place and presence of the deity. In the end, the image itself will become the locus of reverence and an object of worship, all of which constitutes complete nullification of the singular essence of Israelite monotheism. I know that's a kind of lengthy and verbose quote, but the, what, what Nahum is saying there is that the danger in abandoning the book 
and replacing it with an image is that the image itself becomes that which we work, that which we worship. And that is dangerous, which brings us to our last point. Why does this matter? Why does it matter that we worship the one true God and not worship an image? Look at verse 5. It's important to note here that this commandment is the only commandment where God offers us a reason for why he gives it. So it's helpful for us to understand what he's getting at. Verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, am a jealous God. Why does God forbid us to worship images? Well, because he's jealous. I think many of us might struggle with this idea because we see jealousy as a negative trait, which it is when its object is something that we do not own, something that does not belong to us. But when jealousy is aimed at something that does belong to you, it becomes far more virtuous. A holy jealousy is rather one that guards one's rightful possession. For example, I am jealous for my wife's affections. Now hear me carefully. My wife does not belong to me, but her affections belong to me and mine to her. That's the marriage covenant. And to see my wife in the arms of another man would incite holy jealousy, amongst other things. (laughs) And it's a good thing that I'm not okay with that. Similarly, God loves us with a jealous love. His love for us is exclusive, it's passionate, it's intense. As one commentator says, godly jealousy is not the insecure, insane, and possessive human jealousy that we often interpret this word to mean. Rather, it is an intensely caring devotion to the objects of his love. Like a mother's jealous protection of her children, a father's jealous guarding of his home. What is it that God is jealous after? What is it that he is so desperate to protect in us? If you walk away with just one thing today, I would hope that you walk away with this. God in his divine wisdom knows that to worship an image is to inevitably worship something less than God, less than him. As one commentator says, an idol makes the infinite God finite. The invisible God visible, the omnipotent God impotent, the all-present God local, the living God dead, and the spiritual God material. In short, it makes him the exact opposite of what he actually is. The problem is that the image is not just less than God, but even more significantly than that, God knows that the image will never satisfy. It cannot satisfy. The true heart now we see behind the second commandment is that we might experience true joy because there is no joy outside of God himself. To quote John Piper, he says, God is the source of greatest happiness, greatest treasure in the world. God himself is the most satisfying gift he could give us. When he exalts himself, he is loving us, giving us that which will make us most deeply and most permanently happy. God is the only being in the universe for which self-exaltation is the highest virtue. To exalt myself is to distract people from what will make them happy, which is God. But if God exalts himself, he is not distracting you. He is loving you. God commands us, enjoy me, treasure me. We say that and we're an egomaniac. If God says that, he is love. Why is it so important that we obey the second commandment? Because our joy depends on it. Only if we worship the true God correctly will we experience 
joy. But if God's jealousy is not enough to sway you, the other reason why it's so important that we obey the second commandment is because we of all people are in no need of another image of God. Need I remind you of the creation story, Genesis 1 verse 27 So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God, in his grace, put his very image in us, in you. So when we look at one another, when we interact with one another, we see God, which is why we are not allowed to make God's image, but rather to be God's image. And yet we know that the image of God in us has been marred by sin, cracked, kind of like my cracked cell phone screen. You can still see it, but it's clearly not the way that it was intended to be. And so sometimes, oftentimes, now when we look at one another, when we interact with one another, we see ugliness rather than God's beauty and design. But there's hope. There's hope for us. Colossians 1.15 says that he is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And then most profound, John 14.9 says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. We must not make images because God has given us the perfect image, the exact imprint of himself in Jesus Christ. We must marvel at the fact that unlike any other world religion, God so longs for us to know him, to interact with him, that he became like his creation. He took on flesh and he came into our neighborhood. And it's in light of this truth that that we must not remake God into an image, but be remade into his image through encountering and worshiping the one true God, the way that he has designed for us to worship. What an awesome gift that we have. To behold God in all his splendor and glory and to worship him in that way. I want to conclude this morning with these reflections from New Testament scholar Michael Horton. He says, may we think about God? Absolutely, but only as he has revealed himself. May we meditate on God's character and activity, yes, but only as he has explained himself and his actions in history. May we experience God without a doubt, but only as we encounter him in his own actions of communication. You see, the second commandment does not prohibit the senses any more than it discourages the use of reason, but it does command both to submit to the word and sacraments as God's means of feeding and renewing the senses. This is how God has chosen to feed and nourish us. And the good news is that when we submit to God's ordained means and when we worship the correct God correctly, we experience him and we will be satisfied. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, I confess that Uh, This commandment is so often neglected, it's ignored, because I think we don't understand your heart here. Lord, you're so passionate for us, and you don't want us to worship anything less than you, the one true God, because you know that you alone will satisfy. Father, would you call us to repentance in the ways that we have failed to worship you for who you are and in the way that you have prescribed Will we trust you in your word and submit to them 
so that we might see you fully and experience joy unending. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.